All right, I think we can make a start. The still fairly long out there. I want to read a few verses from Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, just the first six verses. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that shall I give unto you, as I said unto Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even under the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your coast. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage, for unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers, to give them. Let's pray. O Lord, as we come now together for these few moments around thy word, we pray that the Spirit of God would be in attendance to every word that is read, every word that is uttered, every word that is heard, and that there would be that which is profitable for us. How we are so thankful that thou hast revealed thy word to us. So bless our meditations today as we reflect upon this book and this theme that it might encourage us to go forward not only as a church corporately but in our own individual lives. So guide our thoughts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It really is quite incredible uh, when I heard what we just heard uh, in the light of what I want to address beginning today, and I think I'm scheduled for four sessions total uh, during this time, and we'll do a little series here on the book of Joshua, but particularly on this theme of advancing, uh, advancing the kingdom. And many of the themes that we just heard uh, in the message this morning are going to be reiterated uh, here in this section as well. So we will begin it today. I don't think I'm scheduled again then to be here until November and then three Sundays in November, whatever they are, uh, we'll continue this. So keep a hold of this handout. Some of you just come in. Buddy, need one of these little... Yeah, thanks, Rob. Take care of that. So we're dealing with the theme of advancing the kingdom. And there are going to be implications and applications of what we address here that are going to apply to the church corporately, but also to our lives 
as individual believers. So I think the application will be very far-reaching. Now the handout that you just have, this outline, I don't know if I'll get to it today or not. There are some introductory things that I want to draw our attention to, so if you're taking notes, you can just flip it out and make whatever your notes you want on the back side. But do keep that because we'll, in the series that we have, work through that particular outline. What I want to do first of all is just to identify some of the key themes that are going to occur in the book of Joshua that are going to have direct relevance to the topic that we want to uh, address together. Certainly the great theme of Joshua is pretty much on the surface. People had been walking around now in the desert for those 40 years after being delivered by the hand of God and the blood of the sacrifice from Egypt. But now they are entering into the promised land. And God's faithfulness is going to be very much in focus as God is going to guarantee that these people are going to come into that land a promise. They are going to advance into that territory. So a great focus on God's faithfulness, a great focus on the obedience of the people in claiming the promise that God had given to them. And as we think of this theme of advancing the kingdom, we're going to see both of those ideas, that the kingdom advances because of what God does, and the kingdom advances because of what we do, because of what the people are going to be engaged in. There's a cooperation, if you will, between the work of God and the promise of God and how the people respond and act on the basis of that promise that God has given to us. But I'm going to isolate, before we put all of that together in the structure of the outline, just to identify some of the key themes. And some of these we have just heard. We heard today of the great focus on the presence of God. And you can't miss that in the book of Joshua. A great emphasis on the Lord's presence with his people. And particularly, that is going to be illustrated uh, in the object lesson of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, you remember that by this time, uh, the only Bible, the only Bible that these people had was the books of Moses. Moses now has died. Uh, the five books that we call the Pentateuch have been written, and they are going to be put to the focus uh, as far as the people of God were concerned. Joshua was going to read those to them on a, uh, on a regular basis. So they had that much of God's word, but that was all they had. And God, in his grace, in revealing truth, would give them the various object lessons, remember. It was during the wilderness experience that God instructed them concerning the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, uh, were all of the object lessons, the symbols, and the prophetic pictures uh, of what the Lord Jesus was going to do ultimately, what true worship looked like ultimately, and that what God was doing in the midst of his people. Recall that one of the, one of the meet names of the tabernacle was the tent of meeting, where God was going to meet with his people, a place of fellowship, of divine communion. But as you think of that tabernacle, the climactic object lesson of the presence of God with his people was the Ark of the Covenant. 
Remember that tripartite division of the tabernacle? Uh, the closer you went, uh, the further you went, uh, the more restrictions there were. And behind that veil in the most holy place was that one piece of furniture, and that was the Ark of the Covenant. That climactic manifestation of the presence of God with his people. Now, it was just an object lesson. They didn't believe that God was in that box. You can't confine God to a box or a tabernacle or a church or anything else. God's a spirit. Uh, and they understood that. But God was giving them this box, this ark uh, overlaid with gold, the cherubim, the mercy seat. What a picture it was of the immediate presence of God with his people. Now, I say that because when we come to the book of Joshua, uh, there's going to be a great emphasis upon the Ark of the Covenant. Over 30 times, uh, over 30 times in this book, the Ark is going to be in view. And that Ark was a visible demonstration, a visible assurance to the people that God was present uh, with them. Uh, you have that Emmanuel concept, if you will, that God was with his people. And all the way through, all the way through the Ark of the Covenant uh, is going to be in front of the people, a reminder to them that no matter where they went, no matter what the battle was going to be, that God was there in their midst. So an object lesson. And certainly the implications of that, as we heard even in the message today, yes, that God is present with his people uh, and God is present with the church. So that's one thing uh, that I want to uh, highlight. Uh, another theme that we're going to see in the book is the Lord's instructions uh, that over and again, God is telling now Joshua what to do. He's going to speak to him. He's going to uh, give his word. He's going to make commandments, references made to the law of God, that which is written. God gives the command. God sets the order. Uh, and Joshua then, as the leader of the nation, obeyed what God and then caused the people uh, to do that as well. So the Lord's instructions, the Lord's words, if you will, uh, and the emphasis then upon revelation. If we're going to advance the church, if we're going to advance the kingdom, it must be by the precepts that the Lord himself has ordained. So the Lord's instructions is going to be a key theme as well. Then we're going to see an emphasis thirdly upon the power of God, uh, the absolute power of God. Uh, God was going to fight. God was going to fight for these people. If you go back to Deuteronomy just for a moment, as Moses now is anticipating, uh, they're entering into this land, this land of promise, a promise that was made many, many years ago, but now coming into the enjoyment. But I'm looking here at Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. And Moses says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and shall utterly destroy them. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show them mercy, and so forth. Can you see that connection there? The Lord says, I'm going to drive out these people. I'm going to drive them out. I'm going to deliver them into your hands. Now you get in there and conquer them. You get in there and fight against the Canaanites. So here's this cooperation, I say, between what God is doing and what the people did in faith 
in the word of God, but a great emphasis upon the power of God. God fought for them. God fought for them. And uh, how dramatically that is going to be revealed. The very first battle, the very first battle was what? As they crossed over the Jordan. Jericho. There's Jericho. Uh, A formidable city. Uh, One that was renowned for the size of its walls, its defensive mechanisms. Uh, And that was their strategic uh, defensive system. Uh, But what were those walls to God? Uh, And how did Jericho fall? How did Jericho fall? You understand, typically, in in ancient Near Eastern warfare, that's why all these cities had their walls. You'd have to lay siege against the city. You'd have to starve the people out, and hopefully that would do the trick. But that would take a year sometimes. Uh, Now, what does God say? I want you to get into Jericho. I want you to march around it every day for seven days. Last day, you march around seven times. Blow your horn. See what happens. Uh, And they blew their horn on the seventh day, and the walls came down. Uh, Now, that put the fear of God in the Canaanites. But who did that? You know, there, there's an old spiritual, I think, that says something that Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, right? Did you ever hear that one? Uh, I don't know if you Dutch people have ever heard uh, spirituals. Uh, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, yeah? But who fought that battle? Uh, it was hardly Joshua that fought that battle. It was the Lord fighting that battle. It was the Lord that miraculously... Uh, brought the defeat of that city, and that set the whole course. Uh, Then we have this scary scene. Remember that scary scene as the nations now, uh, five or seven of them, whatever it was, are gathering themselves together against Joshua. That had to be a fearful thing, this coalition. Uh, And what did Israel know about warfare? They they knew how to make bricks out of straw and so forth, but they knew very little about uh, warfare. And now here are these nations that were used to warfare. They fought among themselves all the time. Now they come out together and coming against Joshua all at once. Oh, that was the hand of God. Uh, That was the hand of God because uh, all of these were independent little city-states. You ever notice that? It's the king of Jericho. It's the king of Ai. It's the king of uh, Hebron. It's the king of Lachish. I remember when I was a kid, you know, I'd read that and so they, they, they must mean mayors of these cities, right? They're mayors, not kings. But they were kings. Uh, these were nations. They were city-states. There was no one capital. And the fact that one city fell meant absolutely nothing to the other one. Uh, after Jericho, there was I, right? And after I, there was another, another, and another. Uh, they had to fight all. So to, to go through every city would, would take years and years and years. But God, in his providence... God in his providence hardens the hearts of these kings and he brings them out all at once. He gets them out of the city. He gets them out of the city. And now in a coalition against Israel, against Joshua, uh, they come to fight. Now that was the Lord's doing. That was the Lord's doing. It had to be a scary thing at first. But God gave the victory. Now, it, it it took the long day, right? It took the long day, Joshua chapter 10, to get all that taken care of. But there's an evidence of God's power, of God's power that was, uh, that, that was working. Here is God uh, exercising his authority and demonstrating his sovereignty uh, over the affairs of these people. This was the time of miracles. This was the time of miracles. Uh, I think we sometimes get the impression, right, that miracles were kind of commonplace, Uh, in the Old Testament. But that was not true. 
there, in the history of the world, in the history of the world, there are only four periods in which the miraculous occurred. Uh, all the years from creation until Moses. No evidence of the miraculous. But when Moses comes on the scene, now we have miracles. You have the miracles that he demonstrates with his rod and all of that with the Egyptians. And those miracles continue uh, into the time of Joshua. But then there's no miracles. The next time there's miracles is the time of Elijah and Elisha uh, against now the Baal worship. And after Elijah and Elisha, there's no more miracles until the time of Jesus uh, and the apostles. And there's no more miracles. There's no more miracles until, and this I suppose depends on your view of Revelation. But in Revelation chapter 11, you have those two witnesses in the spirit of Moses and Elisha that again doing miracles. But apart from those four instances, the miraculous was rare. It was rare. But it was at times of crisis, yes? It was always at times of crisis when true religion was in jeopardy, when true religion was making an advance that God did the supernatural to confirm and to verify that this is indeed the one true religion. So here comes Moses now, uh, goes into Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, I don't know who this, I don't know who this Yahweh is. Well, let me show you who Yahweh is. All right. And, and so the miracles against the Egyptians were to confirm that Jehovah was the one true and living God. Same thing now, as I say, this carries over into uh, the time of Joshua. Then we, you have Elijah and Elisha. What's going on then? You have Jeroboam state religion, but now you have Jezebel that has made Baal worship an officially recognized uh, religion of the state. The worship of the one true God seemed to be in jeopardy. So here now are these miracles demonstrating that everything they said was true about Baal is really true about uh, Jehovah. He's the one that has the power. And then, of course, Jesus, uh, as we have now the culmination of the fullness of time. Uh, and then in the end times when you have the great attack against the one true religion. So the miraculous, but there are evidences, I say, of the power of God. Uh, causing the enemy's heart to melt, uh, as even Rahab said. So an emphasis upon the Lord's power. A, a fourth emphasis is on the Lord's leader. On the Lord's leader. Jehovah ultimately is the leader. References are made to the Lord 225 times or so in the book. God is the one who is the real leader of the people. But yet there's an emphasis upon Moses and Joshua. Uh, as God raised up these men, God raised up these men as the servants of Yahweh to be the leaders of the people. Uh, the book begins with the death of Moses, and Moses is referred to some 50 times in the book, but Moses is dead. Moses is dead. But now here comes Joshua. How great was Moses? How great was Moses? But now he's dead, and it certainly teaches us, certainly, that while God uses men, and God raises up men, and God raises up leaders, that there is not a man, there is not a leader that is indispensable. Not even Moses uh, was indispensable. Uh, he's dead, but the work of God is going to continue. I think sometimes we get so hung up on a certain personality that if, well, listen, 
God doesn't need anything. God doesn't need any man. But God uses men. And God raises up men. In the text that we considered from uh, Psalm 68 today, Christ has ascended. And Dr. Kivenhoven made this clear, right? Christ has ascended. And he's given gifts. He's given gifts uh, unto men. And in, as he made the parallel quite nicely and quite rightly so to Paul's quotation of that in Ephesians chapter 4, that among the gifts are what? Men. He's given apostles. He's given the pastors, teachers for the edification. But these are the gifts of God to the church. I remember one time years ago, I was preaching someplace. My mother was in the congregation. And I must have been preaching on that passage. And I made the statement you know, to the congregation that I was God's gift to them. You see, I was God's gift to them. And my mother cleaned me afterwards. She said, you were being arrogant. And I was, mother, I say that in all humility, but read your Bible. All right? You know, read your Bible. Uh, so I took my mother's rebuke, but at the same time, I tried to get her to read her Bible. Right? This is God's gift to you. Dr. Kivenhoven is God's gift to you. Dr. Beeky is God's gift to you. Uh, humbling. Humbling. But the fact is that God does use leaders uh, to build and to help the church. And so we're going to see that uh, in the book of Joshua. And you start making parallels between Joshua and Moses. It's really quite uh, quite remarkable. A, 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 fifth, a, a fifth theme that we want to see is the fact of God's judgment. The fact of God's judgment. And this is one of the difficulties. Uh, as you have the instructions for Israel to go into this land and to completely wipe out the Canaanites. Here are these nations. And the instructions were to exterminate them. Now on the surface that appears to be a great problem for us. That's genocide. All right, and we bemoan that when we hear in the news today. But here is God instructing the people, instructing his people to go into this land and you kill every Canaanite you see. Uh, you don't enter into any alliance with them. You don't enter into any covenant with them. God put the Canaanites under, you want to learn a Hebrew word? Uh, he, he put them under what's called the harem under the harem, under the ban, uh, un under that which was anathema would be the, the Greek word for it, uh, that which is under devoted unto God for his disposal, for his disposal. That's what got, uh, that's what got uh, what's his name, uh, Achan in trouble, right? Because God told them everything in Jericho is under the ban. It's devoted to me. Don't you take it. Don't you? It's mine, the Lord. And Achan took some, and you know the story uh, of what happened to Achan as he took that which belonged to God. But here's this judgment. Here's this judgment. It's very, it's hard, but it's going to teach us a great deal about the nature of sin. And what was the obstacle? We're dealing here with advancing the kingdom. Advancing the kingdom. How? What was the hindrance? What was the hindrance to their advancing the kingdom except all those Canaanites that were in the land? Uh, they were the obstacles. And God is going to be removing those obstacles. It says something about the nature of sin. But it's going to say something about the nature of uh, grace as well. Because there were even those that were rescued from the band. There's Rahab. Yeah. Uh, there are the Gibeonites. 
uh, whatever you think of their uh, deception, but nonetheless they were spared uh, under the ban, but all of us as well, right? Under the, under the judgment of God, uh, under the condemnation of God, but by his grace, uh, there have been those sentenced to death uh, that have been rescued. So it's a great picture here. Uh, but the Canaanites, uh, the obstacles, as we see the advancing of the church corporately, there are obstacles out there. As we see the advancing of the kingdom in our own lives, individual, what's the great obstacle in my life, in your life? Uh, it, it, it's sin. Yeah, it is sin. Uh, how are we to conquer sin? How are we to conquer sin? And Joshua is going to teach us uh, some things here, and we'll consider those as we reflect upon the, upon the advancement of the kingdom. The sixth emphasis is going to be upon the land itself. Emphasis upon the land itself. 600 or so years before Joshua, God promised to Abraham that there was going to be a land, right? A land that is so often described as being milk and honey. A land that was going to be picture of prosperity, a land promise. Part of the Abrahamic covenant, part of the Abrahamic covenant was that God was going to give him and his seed a land. Now, I, I, I wish I had time, and part of what we'll do in, in the following discussion will be see the significance of this land. Um, the land was dirt. All right, we're talking about real geographic location. Uh, Lord described the geography, the borders of uh, the borders of the land to be from. You look at what is it, Genesis 15? I think the last of Genesis 15, where you have the borders described from the great river Euphrates all the way to the river of Egypt, which is the Nile. Uh, that all that territory. Uh, all that territory from the Euphrates all the way to the Nile was to belong to Israel. This was the land of promise. Now, dirt. But there's more to that land than was dirt, all right? Because the land was used as a great object lesson, as a great object lesson, a great picture again of the nature of spiritual conquest, uh, the nature of spiritual battle, the nature of spiritual victories. Uh, and it's going to have a very definite picture here of our, of our sanctification um, as we battle against sin. So I don't have much to say about the land as we advance the kingdom here. Uh, it is going to be taking possession uh, of the possession. I love, I love that expression that occurs in the scripture, that they're going to possess their possession, uh, that God had promised. Uh, now, you, you, you have... And I, I emphasize that in, in relationship to the land, you, you have both a literal land. There was dirt in this land, but there's more than dirt. Now, unfortunately, this becomes a great theological debate. Uh, you have dispensationalists who, on the one hand, saying there's nothing about the land promised than dirt. All right? It's just dirt. Uh, and so here's Israel now going back to possess that land and, you know, whatever else. Uh, and you have some of the uh, reformed, covenant, 
uh, position that will deny the dirt aspect of it uh, and just see it to be a spiritual picture of, of something. Well, I'm Reformed, but not all Reformed people hold to that completely spiritualization uh, of the land. There's both dirt and a spiritual thing. We're going to bring this together, but a great emphasis uh, upon the Lord's gift of the land. Promised, I say, some 600 years before now they are taking their first step to possess the land. Uh, even the delay. Now, the delay was nothing to God, right? But you think of that, 600 years. The Lord, This land was first promised to Abraham. Abraham is long dead. Isaac is long dead. Jacob is long dead. Uh, for those 400 years between Abraham and uh, they're entering into Egypt. Uh, no land. It all just seemed to be a pipe dream, as it were. But now here's under the leadership of Joshua. Moses dead. Now Joshua. Now Joshua, which is the Old Testament name for Jesus, just by the way. Uh, Jesus. Uh, would be the Greek, Yehoshuang is the Hebrew, uh, Jehovah saves. It is under now the leadership of Joshua that they are now, if you will, taking possession of that which was promised so many years earlier. Uh, seemed to be a delay, seemed to be in jeopardy, but God had a purpose as they were now coming into the advancement of that kingdom. And the final theme here uh, is remembrance. The final theme is remembrance. We're going to see that uh, on various occasions as memorials were built. Remember, as they crossed the Jordan, chapter 4, uh, Joshua tells them to pick up t 12 stones. You pick up these 12 stones and you erect this monument. Uh, and this monument of stones was to be a memorial for future generations uh, as they would come and say, what, what do these stones mean? What do these stones mean? And that was going to be an opportunity to recount, to recount the power of God and the grace of God and the victories of the Lord in bringing them into this land. Uh, rehearsals of God's acts over and over again to remember, to think about what God has done. All right, so those general things, all right, I, I think I needed to handle those before we actually come to the logical development of this and we'll see how it all works out together uh, but advancing the kingdom how do we advance the kingdom both corporately as a church but specifically as well individually as we deal with possessing our individual possessions it becomes a great picture then uh, of sanctification all right looks like it's time to go so we'll close in prayer and come back sometime in November. First Sunday of November, I think I'm back. Oh, Lord, how thankful we are for thy word, and Lord, how thankful we are that even in thy providence, what we heard uh, in the message this morning is just an echo of what we are talking about together in this session. So, Lord, we pray that we would be used uh, for the advancing of thy kingdom, that we would rest upon thy promise, and that we would be faithful in exercising due diligence on our part uh, as we, by faith, act on the basis of what Thou hast promised. So teach us, Lord, let this be a profitable survey for us in these days, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.